Okay. Should we just start every episode with that, Bill? I have to. Okay. For the Patreons. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Drew. I'm Bailey. I'm Lacey. And we're sarcastic, so let's get sinister. Sorry, 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 sorry. Who did you upset? Sylvia? Sylvia. Did she really not like it? She is... I, I woke her up from a nap. Oh, <gasps> she's doing her stretches now. Well. Pat's currently selling his car. Oh. Ooh. Alrighty. So, um, are you guys ready to learn? I'm ready. About what? About the Sauter family, um, I'm going to call it a mystery because don't, I don't feel right classifying it as a disappearance or a murders because we don't really know what happened. And like, you know how sometimes when we don't know what happened, we're kind of like, but we kind of do know what happened. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what happened. Okay. I'm very interested to see what you guys think. Um, this is our this is our Christmas episode, and yes, it is a Christmas episode because we are doing all of the vocalizations like this. Lacey started whispering into the mic and got confused. What would be sinister ASMR? Like this crackling of a candle, or? <laughs> Oh, Bailey's got a Taco Bell drink. We can't hear it. A very quiet one. <laughs> I think you gotta be more deliberate with your mouth sounds. Smack your lips. <laughs> I feel like we're gonna lose viewers. Oh, we've lost people. Yeah. Um, I showed you that picture of Sylvia because, Drew, you're not a cat mom. Mm-hmm. So. That is Cats are very much like roommates, and like as much as you want to like smother them with love with dogs, they don't always go for it. No, I so get when, that. Yeah. So when they choose you, and they're like, "Okay, like I want to lay on you and want affection," and that's really funny. special. Yeah, I get it. Um, Lacey and I lived with a cat when we were living together. There was a cat in our house. I, I was going to say <laughs> living with Drew was like living with a cat, and I felt very blessed when she wanted to come cuddle with me on the couch because <laughs> it wasn't every time i sat down sometimes she let me brush her hair that was when i've I always was been a cat mom you were meant to be a cat mom <laughs> um Here so side note lacy i assume your love language is physical touch it's actually words of affirmation but physical touch is a close second and i don't think anybody should be surprised by either of those true yours uh, well, it's definitely not physical touch. Um, <laughs> I would say mine is more acts of service or words of affirmation. Okay. So, like, you sort of kind of work. Yeah. We we made it through. Yeah. And everybody will sit by oh, me. Oh, I'm, I'm quality time. Oh. Yes, we're covering the bases. Yeah. Physical, physical touch and gift giving are like my lowest. Uh, I really could not care if you got me like any gift. 
That makes sense because you live with your husband in like one room. Makes sense. Um, I saw I saw a TikTok that was like, um, maybe your kid isn't clingy. Maybe their love language is physical touch. And I was like, oh, my kids have love languages. Oh, that's cute. So then Lou and I what they are. Well, Lou and I were talking, and we definitely think the older one prefers um, the words of affirmation. She responds best to that, and she's like, she's not much of a cuddler unless mm-hmm. it's she's tired. Um, whereas the younger one is a cuddle bug, and she lo- like physical touch. I think is hers. All right, so back to the Sodder family. So George Sodder was born. 1920. No, Gior- 1934. Giorgio. Giorgio. I, I had to get into my Italian headset. Giorgio Amrani. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardina, Sardinia on November 23rd, 1895. So Sardinia is the island off the coast of the Italian boot. And at this point, if you were a member of our Patreon, I would have a map of Italy, and you'd be able to see exactly where Sardinia was. And Tula is like a city or like a region on the island. So when George was 13, he and his older brother immigrated to the United States in 1908. Why? No one really knows. George was never really willing to talk about his childhood. And as soon as they arrived in Ellis Island, or at Arrived at Ellis Island? Yeah. It's his a place. older brother went back to Italy immediately. So his brother just kind of accompanied him here and then went home. Strange. So George was now in the United States alone at 13. Is Sylvia on your lap now? <laughs> so... On his own, he initially started to work on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to the laborers. After a few years, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia. There, he worked as a driver before starting his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. One day, he walked into a store called The Music Box, where he met the owner's daughter, Jenny. Her name was Jenny Cipriani. Cipriani. Italian? Yes, also Italian. She had come over from Italy when she was three. Jenny was born on March 2nd, 1903 in Troia, a town in southern Italy. So there is not much of an age difference, eight years, but yeah. What year was this again when they met? What? What year was this again when they met? who's to say somebody they probably knew so he came over when he was 13 and then after a few years he moved to west virginia and that's when he met her so who's to say okay they had they married and settled in fayetteville west virginia Hmm. where they lived in a two-story this is kind of important so pay attention to the their house okay two stories five rooms so, not bedrooms, 
five rooms, timber frame house. Mm-hmm. Okay, you picture yeah. it. It was located two miles north of town. And a little background on Fayetteville, West Virginia. It was and still is a small Appalachian town with a main street that doesn't run longer than a hundred yards. <laughs> it was founded. The town was founded in 1837 and quickly grew in the late 19th century, thanks to mainly the coal industry. The mining industry declined in the late 20th century. So Fayetteville's economy is almost now completely based off of tourism. Hmm. Feels a little, but like, I feel like it's risky to um, base your economy solely on tourism. But they have a lot going for them. So if you are in the market for something fun to do, I would suggest warmer times. But uh, they have whitewater rafting, fishing, mountain biking, and rock climbing. Also, they have the new River Gorge Bridge. Ah. Which, do you know what that is? (laughs) I think so. When you said it, it pinged in my head like it was something I'd heard before. So, it's the longest arch bridge in the Western Hemisphere. In the world, it's the fifth longest, but it's the longest outside of China. She's looking it up right now. It's beautiful. It sounded familiar because New River Gorge is a national park. So, I'm assuming that's in the park. I'm going to, I'll do a picture for the Patreon right now. You had me at whitewater rafting, which is something I I want to do. I I want to do that. Um, so they host an annual celebration called Bridge Day, which is th- held on the third Saturday of October every year. So next October, cool. what are you guys doing? Is that do they do like bungee jumping or something? Is that what that is? It looks like they could off of the bridge, but it didn't say anything about doing that. Mm. The new river, which is what the river is called under the bridge is one of the five oldest ma- major rivers in the world. thought that oh, was wow. interesting. That's neat. Yeah, so they do they do have a lot going for them. Yeah. But back to the early 1900s, the town had an active Italian immigrant community, so the f- Sodders fit right in. One of the residents of the town described the Sodders as, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around. In 1923, they had their first of ten children. Oh boy! You said 1923. Yes, they're not yeah. even like working a, a farm, so I don't know why you need that many kids. It's boring in 1923, okay? And also, who said they weren't working a farm? I thought he had a, like a trucking business. Yeah, so they he does have a a coal truck trucking business that hauls coal, but they mm-hmm. also have like chickens and and cow. Okay, cats, for f- like you know for food. Yeah, they do More have animals. some farm animals and there are chores to be done. So, so um, despite being very private about his childhood, George was outspoken when it came to politics, current events, and business. His strong opinions and interest in expressing those opinions sometimes alienated people. In particular, he harshly opposed the dictator Benito Mussolini. Are you familiar? Yes, yes, Mussolini. One more, one more time. Mussolini. He did not care for him. And this led to about Google him. (laughs) (laughs) 
He was a harsh dictator, I believe, of Italian descent. Probably in the country. Mussolini. Um, so because he was so outspoken of his opposition regarding Mussolini, he had several fierce arguments with other members of the community. And so I this made me this reminded me of our dad Bailey. So I'm just like, is it an Italian thing? <laughs> Like outspoken on politics, getting into fights. Angering we're people. Not, we're not opening that oh. can of worms. Jesus All right, Christ. moving on. Probably it's it's their hot Italian blood. Mm. <laughs> um, in 1943, I don't know if you guys are aware, Mussolini was disposed. Nope, deposed. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's not what I heard. He was deposed and executed. Well, also disposed of. I wasn't quite wrong. <laughs> we just had a different way of phrasing it. Yeah. Um, despite this, George's criticism of the dicta- dictator left many hard feelings. So I'm surprised that that there's so many people who supported Mussolini that they were like, don't talk shit about the dictator. Well, yeah. Now, thing. in 1945, that's where we are now. Okay. And we're I'm going to quickly go over the household um cuz they've already at, in 1945 they've had their 10 children. Um and then some shit starts going down. So um 1945 their 10 children they have John who is 23, of course. I would have been money on John. You want to take some other guesses cuz they're pretty Tell 40s. us how many boys and how many girls. 1 2 3 4 5 Five boys, five girls. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, John, Joe. I don't want to guess any more boy names. Okay. Was there a was there a Mary? There's a Mary Ann. Okay, that a- counts. That counts. Was there a Catherine? No. I'm what done guessing. I would say Okay, so there's John who was twenty three, Joe right. twenty one, Mary Ann was seventeen. George Jr., 16. Ugh. Maurice was 14. Wouldn't guess that. Martha was 12. Louis was 10. Jenny was 8. Betty was 5. And Sylvia was 2. I don't think I would have guessed anything else if I tried harder. Maybe George I Jr. Like you- My Sylvia's 2, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like you could have gotten Betty. Maybe. My grandma's name is Betty. Yeah. And also Jenny. I don't know if she's a junior. Probably not because different Jenny last name. Jenny is a but... name just like through the ages. Yeah, but like Jenny is the mom's you know name, I mean? so. Yeah. Uh, Alright, all right. so you're ready for some shit to start going down? Yes. Shit was going down in the world, too, at this point as well. Yes. You said 1945, so. In October 1945, a life insurance salesman came to the Sodder home in hopes of a sale. After being refused, he warned George that his house quote, would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Because as a result of the... Salesman. No, no, no. As a result of the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. Oh my god. What yeah. a weird... Side note, this reminds me of the Office episode while uh, Pam and Jim are on their honeymoon and Michael has that Italian insurance guy come 
and they all like oh. think that he's in the mafia or whatever because yeah. he makes a comment about like one match and your paper warehouse will go up in smokes. <laughs> That's a good point. Mm. Later that same year, another visitor, allegedly seeking work, took the occasion to go around to the back of the home and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. George was puzzled by the, this observation since he had just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed. And the mm-hmm. local electric company had said afterwards it was perfectly safe. Huh. So he he was just like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? In the weeks before Christmas 1945, George's older sons had also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. Its occupants watching the younger solder children as they returned home from school i don't like so, that so just a couple weird con- like things that were happening leading up to christmas christmas eve 1945 is when our our story the the climax begins all right george jenny and nine of their children were home joan joan there is no joan joe oh. joe the second child the 21 year old had joined the army years before and was away from home at the time marion the third born and eldest daughter had been working at a dime store downtown she surprised her younger sisters with all but sylvia with new toys she bought them fuck sylvia well okay she was the third born so she had um seven younger siblings Mm -hmm. and three of them were boys but she only brought she only brought gifts for martha jenny and betty she liked them the best you said this was a dime store yeah is that like a a dollar store you think but like dimes because because the time yeah yeah what's the what's that word inflation Mm. um So, yeah, she surprised her sisters with the gifts. The children were so excited for Christmas that they asked their mother if they could stay up past their usual bedtime. So, at 10 p.m., George and his two older sons, John and George Jr., 23 and 16, were already asleep. They had spent the day working at George's coal trucking business and were exhausted. So, Mm -hmm. Jenny told the children that they could stay up a little later as long as Maurice, the 14-year-old, and Louis, the 9-year-old, remembered to finish their chores. They were to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. Jenny then took her daughter, Sylvia, to bed with her. And that was the end of her night. At around midnight, Jenny was awoken by the sound of the telephone. An un- is, is your mom okay? Uh, I think the dog jumped on her and startled her. Oh, okay. Oh, she cut her with her fucking nail. That's what she said. <laughs> I don't know if you picked it up or not, so I'm making sure everybody hears. I just heard her. I just heard like a a gasp or something. I was worried. (laughs) She's also not. She's sick, um. So she's just cuddled up on the couch in her blankets and heat packs. And Charlie leaped onto her. The the phone ringing startled her her too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jenny was also startled by the phone ringing. So was Um, Lizzie's mom. I know. An unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was a lot of loud laughter and glasses clinking in the background. 
Jenny told her that she had the wrong number and then hung up. While returning to bed, she noticed that all the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. She saw Mary Ann's asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and returned to her room. Also, side note, I saw in different sources Marion and Marianne. Mm. I don't know what her, her name is. Like on um, findagrave.com, her name is like Mary Ann, parentheses, Marion. So I don't know. No. <laughs> um, at around 1 a.m., so about an hour after the phone mm. call, Jenny was awoken again. By a loud bang on the roof, followed by a rolling noise. It's Santa. She, I know. <laughs> she waited and listened for further noise, but when nothing came, she went back to sleep. Half an hour later, okay. Jenny again was awakened. It's so hard getting good sleep. At this point, mm -hmm. just stay awake. Like, <laughs> fuck it. Well, I mean, she did after that. This time, it was I the know. smell of smoke that woke her. Mm -hmm. when she got up again she found that the room george used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and the fuse box this obviously prevented jenny from reaching the phone to call for help mm -hmm. so instead she woke george then marianne who was asleep on the couch she told marianne to take sylvia outside while she and george frantically tried to rescue the other children john and george jr shared a room and both quickly woke up john so I believe that they both all the I think I believe that George and Jenny and Sylvia shared the master bedroom on the first floor and then the other kids slept upstairs. Okay. And John and George Jr. were in one room and as they were running down the stairs, John shouted for his siblings to get out of the house. And then he and George ran downstairs. The fire quickly engulfed the staircase to what is called the attic, but the upstairs, where the children slept. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Marianne, Sylvia, John, and George Jr. escaped the house. So George, upon seeing that only half of his kids were out of the house, frantically tried to save the rest of his children. He first broke a window to re-enter the house. In doing so, he sliced his arm open. He found it nearly impossible to see through the smoke and fire. The downstairs consisting of the living room and dining room, kitchen and office, and master bedroom were completely inflamed. So I guess when they said five room, they didn't count like the attic area. Okay. Because it's the like living room. Five room ranch, uh, but then with an attic on top kind of deal? Yeah. Okay. Living and dining rooms, kitchen, office, and master bedroom were completely inflamed. George figured that the five remaining children were trapped upstairs in the bedroom. The staircase Our to the fine. second floor was fully engulfed in flames, though, so George exited the house and rushed to the side of the house. He hoped to gain entry through the second floor window, but the ladder that he'd always kept propped against the house was mysteriously missing and could mm. not be found. So his next idea was to use a truck. He would drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb on top of it to reach the windows. But even though they'd function, they were functioning perfectly the day before, neither would start now. Are they so like close enough to neighbors that anybody has like called for help or anything? 
I'm going to get there. Or are you going to get there? Okay. But Desperate. Like, I'm telling you what George did right now. I'm okay. gonna, I keep in mind that there are like five other people standing outside. Although um, I believe that John and George Jr. were also helping him try and gain re-entry into the house. Okay. So at a loss, like not having any other plan for getting into the house, he tried to scoop water from a rain barrel to try yeah. and put the flames out but found that it was frozen solid. Oh my god. So, meanwhile, Marianne tried to call for help, but the house's phone did not work, so she sprinted to the neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but couldn't get an operator to respond. Like, so nobody would answer. Hmm. So, while she's doing that, another neighbor saw the blaze and made a call from a nearby tavern, because I guess they didn't have a phone. In their okay. house. Um, but again, the, the, no operator responded to the call. So that neighbor drove into town and tracked down the fire chief, <laughs> F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, which was a phone tree system. So he would call one firefighter who would call another who would call another. The six Sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch their house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. That's horrifying. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m. So, like, Jenny woke up at 1.30 and all of this started. So, like, seven hours. The department had been low on manpower due to the war. Chief Morris said the next day that that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. The chief couldn't drive a fire truck? Yes. Was he drunk? This is very interesting. That's kind of what I was thinking. I was wondering, like, it was Christmas Eve. Maybe it was a little inconvenient for some people. I feel like if you're like an on-call firefighter, don't be drunk. But that's not my business. Well, I don't know if he was drunk. I'm not saying he was. I don't think they had. I, do, I already don't like said. him. <laughs> Who's here? Oh Charlie and Nina do not like him either. <laughs> they they call bullshit. They support Lacey. Hmm. Oh, she's muted now. Yeah, she muted. I'm assuming they're still barking. Mm. Probably delivery or something. Should we just keep moving on? Yeah, let's do it. So the All right, five there we go. I wanted to wait until they were over it. Mm-hmm. We were go just going to keep going. Yeah, yeah. So the five missing children were Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Lewis, who some sources say nine, others say ten. He's about that age. Nine okay. and a half. Yeah, Jenny, who was eight, and five-year-old Betty were presumed dead. Hmm. However, a search of the grounds turned up no trace of remains. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was cursory at best. So, like... Not an in-depth... Yeah, they didn't really look that well. 
I mean, it took them seven hours to get there, so... Nevertheless, Chief Morris su- suggested that the fire had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. A state police inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, attributing the causes to fire or suffocation. A few days after the fire, George and Jenny could not bear the site anymore, so George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for the lost children. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd, 1946, although their surviving children did. So, officials determined that the fire had been caused by faulty electrical wiring, and the five missing children had died in the fire. That was the, the official report. Okay. This conclusion, understandably, did not satisfy the Sodders. How could five children completely perish in a fire, leaving no bones or flesh? It couldn't have been an electrical fire, the Sodders believed, because they could not see, or they could see some lights on in the rooms downstairs before the fire consumed the whole house. So the lights were still working. Mm. Moreover, George had recently hired a professional electrician to do some work. Remember the stove? And it had passed inspection, which to him was evidence that something else had sparked the blaze. Now, the missing ladder was found that had, um, had been left on the side of the house. It was now at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. That's even if you usually didn't always keep it in the same place, you wouldn't throw the bottom of an embankment. It's not like you have to bring it in from the barn. Yeah. Hmm. The Sodders believed that the children might not have been in the bed, their bedroom at all because no one recalled hearing them crying out during the fire. You would think you would hear some screaming. Mm-hmm. So a telephone repairman told the Sodders after the fire that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle, which a block and tackle are used for removing car engines. Um, the, the neighbors saw him stealing the block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire um, was identified and he was arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing the block and tackle has never been explained. Hmm. Also worth noting, the strange phone call from the unfamiliar woman at midnight indicated that the phone line hadn't been cut at that time. Oh, forgot about that phone call. Mm-hmm. So Jenny began to conduct a private experiment, burning animal bones, like chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, Mm. to see if the fire consumed them. Each time she was left with a heap of charred bones. She knew that remnants of various household appliances had been found in the burned out basement, still identifiable. So, oh, and then also an employee of a crematorium informed her that Bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. So, like, it was extremely unlikely that those kids were in the house and got all burned up. Yeah. 
The solder's truck's failure to start was also considered strange. George, George believed that they had been tampered with, and perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of George's son, sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that, the, that Sauter and his sons might have, in their haste to start the trucks, flooded the engines. Hmm. So, as spring approached in 1946, the Sauters planted flowers in the soil, bull bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended to it carefully for the rest of her life. Developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children might be alive somewhere. So then this is when things start going, kind of. Up until this point, they had their theories. Now things start getting a little wonky. Okay. One day, while the family was visiting the site, Sylvia, the little baby, mm -hmm. found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. Jenny recalled hearing that hard thump on the roof and a rolling sound. Oh, yeah. George concluded it was a napalm, pineapple bomb, a hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. The driver of a bus that had passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. The family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no way to prove it. Yeah. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of the... Oh, okay, sorry. Said she had seen some of the children, peer, like the missing children, peering yeah. out of a passing car while the house was burning. Who was it who said that? A neighbor? Just a woman. Hmm. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen hmm. some of the missing children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Hmm. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot as well. So in 1947... George and Jenny sent a letter from, about the case to the Federal Bur Bureau of Investigation, or um, the FBI. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. The FBI. Oh. And received a, a reply from J. Edgar Hoover. Oh. Saying, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of, of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this borough. You're telling me that the director of the FBI responded to them? Yes. <laughs> okay. Or maybe he just signed a letter. I don't know. Okay. Hoover's agents said they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined the offer. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like maybe it was just from the borough and J. Edgar Hoover's name was stamped onto it got it and like the fbi agents reached out and were like hey if you need help we'll help and they were like fayetteville police were like mm -mm, you're fine we got no, it no thank you <laughs> the case is closed those kids burnt up real quick they were super dry 
<laughs> that felt mean. Why? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Do you have moments of like, uh, that sometimes we go a little too far with the sarcasm? <laughs> I think that the way was... we all paused there was all <laughs> us going, was that too much? That was that was another little American Dad thing. Oh, okay. There was one episode where like this lady rolls into a fireplace and burns up like that, and mm-hmm. Francine goes, "Wow, she was really dry." Okay, anyway, like dry <laughs> leaves. Oh, next, <laughs> next, the Sodders turn to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley who discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. Oh. Convenient. That was the guy that was was like, your house will go up in smoke. That was that guy? And your kids will be destroyed. Yes. Yeah. Mean. He also heard a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. I know it's very confusing because everybody goes by initials these days. J. Edgar Hoover, C.C. Tinsley, F.J. Morris. I appreciate you reminding us who everybody is when you tell us the Mm -hmm. name. Although Morris had claimed no remains were found, he supposedly confided that he discovered, quote, a heart in the ashes. (laughs) So the cage of the body, gone. But that vital organ hung on yes what a survived the flames but like teeth and bones did not got he it. hid it inside a dynamite box and buried oh. it at the scene what the fuck what a what weird story to spin <laughs> tinsley the private investigator persuaded morris the fire chief to show them the spot together they dug up the box and took it straight to the local funeral director director who poked and prodded the heart and concluded it was beef liver. <laughs> it's still weird that that survived a fire. Well, it was untouched by the fire. So it seems that... Um, like he just boxed up some beef liver and was like... Soon afterward, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all. That he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation so i mean this is a horrifying situation but he was like i'm gonna throw some beef liver in the house and then maybe they'll think i found their kids no he he thought i'm gonna throw some beef liver in a box and bury it and then just tell them and then they'll find it and think yes all five of my kids have perished in this fire because i found one beef liver in the box buried what a weird convoluted i feel like and this is fully supposition because all i know about this man is what you've told us but i do feel like he was a drunk <laughs> it does sound like something like a town drunk would but do. also the, the fire chief yeah maybe he could drive a fire engine he just couldn't that night because he was once again drunk Lacey, right. it's a small town. People had to do wear many hats for different things. Yeah. So town drunk, fire chief. It, it's I'm sure the mailman, the mailman was probably also the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So George saw this. This is kind of where it starts to get a little sad, and I worry that George started spiraling. Oh. 
He saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced. What are we looking at, Bill? You're muted, buddy. Sorry, Pat, just, he was trying to come in through the door, so I muted, so I could tell him that he's good. Um, and then I was looking at Sylvia. Oh. I feel like every time you do that, all we see is your mic. Okay. You're not meant to see her. It's not for you. It's for me. Well, then why are you moving the camera? Because she's, like, right behind my laptop. Oh, I see. Okay. I thought she was on your lap and you were trying to show us. Anyway. So, George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. George. In August 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. Oscar B. Hunting. For clues. It sounds like he what? would find stuff. <laughs> well, Bailey? I said I would trust him to find things. Me too. Oscar's going to be Hunting. helpful. So the excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, including damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. Quote, the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The the report concluded that it is unlikely that the vertebrae vertebrae belonged to a 14-year-old and the bones showed no evidence of being exposed to fire. So, first of all, not exposed to fire. Second of all, the oldest of the missing children was 14. Okay. So. That sounds like, I know that we're not in like a theory place yet, but I'm going to do it while it's in my brain. Sounds like somebody was like, we need to put evidence there in case they come back and look for bones. Like Fire Chief Mars? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like his plan was not as well thought out. His beef liver. I feel like if you found some vertebrae, you might be like, oh, this was a body. They just happened yeah. to send it to like experts. And then also like though, like where did the vertebrae come from? A sixteen or seventeen year old. I was paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> Are, you can't just donate bones. Like these are people. With big, maybe it was somebody who especially not your back bones died, and they were. I don't know, but it's all very suspicious. <laughs> so the investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950. Ooh. Afterwards, however, Governor Okay, so his name is Oki. Governor Oki L. Pattinson. Oh, that's Pattinson. his first name. Yeah, his first name's Oki. Okay. It's like okay, but there's an E, not an A. <laughs> All right. So afterwards, however, Governor Oki L. Pattinson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders that the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. 
the FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. So in 1952, the Sodders had flyers printed up with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward for information about even one of them. They soon increased the amount. Sorry, I'm just going to do a quick conversion. Yeah. I know where your brain's at. Uh, would be a little shy of 56000 today mm. for $5,000. $10,000 in 1952 has the same purchasing power as roughly $113,000 today. Damn. So the initial price for the reward or the initial reward was about 50,000. They soon increased that amount to 100,000 and they put up a billboard at the site of the house with the same information. A woman who ran a Charleston hotel named Ida Crutchfield said she saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She said in a, she said that in a statement. Do you like the Italian extraction, Lacey? You smirked a little bit. Yeah, it was unexpected. She said, I, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They mm. registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I had been... I was being frozen out, and so I had nothing more. So I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. So investigators today do not consider her story credible, as huh. she had only first seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. Oh. Yeah. So. Oh, freaking witnesses. George would follow up leads in person, traveling to the areas from where lead tips would come. A woman from St. Louis, Missouri, claimed that Martha had, was being held in a convent. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a, fa a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his... The relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. What George is really doing and yeah. Yeah. So when asked what she thought happened to her children, Jenny told the Beckley Post Herald in nineteen seventy five, quote, somebody stole them. That's what. So they seemed adamant that their children were alive somewhere. Which I mean, there's. I don't think there's enough evidence to say that they died in the fire. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they were alive somewhere. But then you're stuck in that. Where are they? What happened to them? Yeah, but Please. I don't. It just seems really hard to kidnap five kids. Yeah. In 1967, 
George, George, with his son-in-law, who was Sylvia's husband, named Grover Paxton, went to Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in the Texas some in the in, living in Texas somewhere. Police were able to help them find the two men the woman had indicated, but those men denied being the missing sons. So I just like I want you to keep this in mind. Like George has gone to New York, Missouri, Texas, um houston florida like he's traveling all over the place following these leads kids i know i'm just worried about him in 1967 jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her postmarked in central city kentucky with no return address inside was a picture of a young man appearing to be around 30 years old with features strongly resembling lewis's on the back was written this lewis sauter i love brother frankie lil boys i don't know it's like i l i l boys and then it said a nine zero one three two or three five so the sauters and other other investigators could not decipher the message Lewis did not have a brother named Frank, but Jenny did. In fact, the Sodders accused a man named Frank. Oh. Hold on, I have to scroll back up to where I wrote Frank Cipriani. I want to make sure I say that name right because it's cool. Okay, so... um. They accused this Frank of kidnapping the children and raising them as their own in Florida. So remember when George went to Florida and insisted that this man prove that the children were his? Mm-hmm. His name was Frank. Ah, <clears throat> oh, gotcha. The, and it's worth noting that the woman who claimed to have seen the children on Christmas morning said she noticed a car that had a Florida license plate in the parking lot. Oh, I remember that. And and Cipriani lived in the area where other witnesses said that they saw the children. Okay. According to Cipriani's obituary, one of his three sons was also named Frank. So it, it's a common name in that family. And Italian. Yeah, that's true too. The little boy's phrase has sleuths stumped. But many have pointed that the five digits in a nine zero one three two or three five could represent postal codes nine zero one three five for example can be found in the city of palermo the capital of the italian um island of sicily oh interesting so the family after receiving this letter hired another private investigator to go to central city and look into this but he um, took their money and never reported back to them and then they could not track him down afterwards so the picture nonetheless gave them hope. They put an enlargement of it over their fireplace. Did you hear me? Say it yes. again. The photo that they believe to be Lewis as a 30-year-old, they blew it up and put it over their fireplace. Huh. 
Then Jenny had a second billboard created to include the photo she believed to be adult Lewis. The message was the same, stating the children had been, or no, the message was clear. The children had been kidnapped and she was questioning why the police failed to investigate. Mm. The identity of the man in the photo remains unknown and it is unclear whether he is actually Lewis Sauter. In an interview with the Charleston Daily Mail in 1976, Jenny said, quote, nothing is going to get, get me to give up hope that my children are still alive. You know, they could have been kidnapped and taken to Italy. Like, they could have been taken out of the country. And then, like, what are your odds of ever... I mean, think of how hard it would be to find them in the country. That is that is a theory that people have. Stop you know? going ahead, Lacey. Yeah. Sorry. Here, I'm trying to pull up. There's a photo. I'm going to share this with you guys. Of, um the photo of Lewis as a child and then um, the photo of the adult person that um, was sent to them. If So let's say that they're totally wrong and the kids did die in the fire. That means people are like messing with them though. Sending them the yeah. picture and stuff like that. And that's so shitty. So this is the the picture is the adult and baby Lewis, not baby but child, mm -hmm. and then also you can see what was written on the back of it. Hmm. So what do you okay. think about these two I, pictures? I can kind of see like a little bit of resemblance, but like it's so hard because the kid is yeah. so young and yeah, it was There's just a big age difference between us. About 20 years difference i believe what they need is that thing that we have now where you can like age a picture and see what exactly. they look like that'll solve the case i think so. i'm sure somebody has done that probably you know you know so george jenny marianne sylvia George, joe and George Jr. continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. John, the oldest, never spoke about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives. So he didn't like to dwell. Yeah. In 1969, George Sauter died at 73 on August 16th. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the site of the former house. She wore black every day. Yeah, she was sad. Mm -hmm. Jenny died February 15th, 1989, at the age of 85. The family t finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. However, they continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said that they would be safe if they left the house. They were possibly taken back to Italy if the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings have, had survived too. The family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from harm. Mm. So, 
a little bit of a Sicilian mafia. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Because I think if they were like, they needed money from him or whatever, and he wasn't giving it up, so they were going to extort it from him. Apparently, they never contacted him after that to actually be like, hey, we burned up your house. Give us some money or whatever. Because he would have, I mean, he wouldn't, I don't know. He wouldn't have been driving all over the country. Still trying to figure out what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe he knew what happened. But so that that theory is that um, the mafia planned to burn the house down, and someone who knew about the plan decided to try and save the children. Oh, so the mafia didn't like there. kidnap the kids. The mafia didn't kidnap the kids. Out. Yeah, okay. so maybe if that's the theory, he wouldn't be like, "Why did my house burn down?" It would be more of like, "Where? Who took my kids? And where are they?" Okay. Which, you know, is kind of Mm -hmm. the vibe he was going with. Yeah. So, following the deaths of Jenny and George, Grover Paxton, Sylvia's husband, told the Charleston Gazette Mail of the two men they talked to in Houston. Do you remember them? Mm Mm-hmm. The ones who they thought might have been them, and then they were like, no, we're not. Yeah. The woman, a woman wrote to the family and said... These two guys might be Lewis and Maurice. Lewis got drunk and told me that he was Lewis. So I think it's Lewis and Maurice. So George and Grover went and talked to the men and they were like, no, we're not them. (laughs) So Grover said, I think that there was always some doubt in his mind. He died shortly thereafter in 1969. And I think he always wondered if those were his boys. But, like, I feel like if that was your dad, throw him a bone. Be like, yeah. hey, we're we're them. We're safe. But yeah. in order to stay safe, chill. Right. Alrighty. So that's the story. Um, I'm going to end with, like, a little bit of what the remaining children were had di- had done with their, their little lives. Um, it seems that John Sauter took over his father's business. He married Margaret Meadows, and they had a son named Michael and a daughter named Diana. And he died in 2001 at 78. Okay. Joseph, Joe Sauter Sr., was p- a part owner of the family business. He married Clarice Louise Buckland and had four children, Joseph Jr., George, Vicky, and Sherry. Oh, at the time... George. Hmm? Is all? They had a little George. Yeah. At the time of Joe's death in 2010, he was 85, and he left seven grandchildren and 19 great-grandchildren. Jesus. Wow. Right? Marianne, a.k.a. Marion Sauter Crowder, married John Robert Crowder, but had no children. She died in 2005 at the age of 79. I couldn't find much on George Jr. except that he married a woman named Elsie Francis Fish and died in 2012 at the age of 83. Hmm. And then the last child, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the surviving Sauter siblings, died in 2021 at 79. Hmm. She was in the house of the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. She married Grover Paxton and had two children, a son named Grover and a daughter named Jenny. Like her mom and sister. Yeah. 
So it seems that Jenny and George devoted the remainder of their lives to their missing children, but the remaining children went on to live pretty successful and long lives. Everybody like lived into their seventies and eighties. Yeah. But that's, um uh, that's heartbreaking that Sylvia's first memory is that fire. Yeah. Yeah. So like what do you guys think happened to the five solder children? One of the popular theories is the is that the solder children was were kidnapped and were sold possibly to an orphanage in Italy. I just I don't know. I can't figure out what the motive would be for any of this. First of mm-hmm. all, I don't think they were in the house. I think that yeah. they would have found some remains. If it was like one missing kid, I would be like, maybe they missed something. But there's five. Not five. So and I don't nobody think they heard screaming house. or anything. Yes. You would he- hear screaming. Yeah. But like what what and I know people didn't get along with him because of like politics and stuff, but I mean you have to really freaking hate somebody to kidnap five of their kids and burn their house down. Well, I wonder if like the the thing that the whole like they didn't people didn't get along with him because of um his nature. Um if that wasn't the cause of why it seemed like they kind of just rushed this investigation and just mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. shrugged it off. Also took their goddamn time getting there, too. Yeah. Well, they were like, oh, it's George? Hmm. It's probably not. We'll bad. get there when we get there. I don't work when the sun is down. <laughs> uh, what do you think, oh. Drew? I mean, I'm at the same point with as it with you. Like, I don't think that the kids were in the house, but I don't know where they would have gone. I don't like it. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I don't like that George and Jenny never got any answers. Yeah. And, like, the rest of their kids are dead, too, so, like... Yeah. I thought there was a goldfish in that cup. protein but didn't like when she lifted it up didn't look like something was floating i actually like i didn't notice i accidentally hit my remote and my um i don't it says christmas carol on it because i got it when Um, i wanted to see christmas carol um mom wanted to point out because she's listening um Mm -hmm. that you had said that that night when jenny got up the one time the door was unlocked Yes. So people could have come in the house. I was thinking before, you had mentioned it would be hard to kidnap five kids, which, like, it would at one time, but if you do have more than one adult, and two of the boys were supposed to go out to finish chores, Mm -hmm. so they could get them, get the two boys when they go out to finish chores, and then the other three were younger, you could have one or two adults slip in the house and grab those kids or even like use the older boys and be like, if you don't help us, we're gonna burn your house down or something crazy to get them to cooperate with you. Um, I did. I just wanted to remind your mother that mm-hmm. Marianne was sleeping on the couch, like in the living room. That's true. So that means that someone snuck in, walked by her, went up the stairs, and went into the bedroom that had the five kids in it, rather than the one that had George and John in it. Do we know that the kids ever went up to the bedroom? We do not. Maybe they didn't. Maybe that's, they lured thought, them outside. I, that's what I was thinking when your mom said that the door was unlocked. I was like, maybe it was a runaway situation. Maybe it wasn't even like a... 
like a, a kidnapping. I think if it was like a runaway, there would have been away. evidence of them at some point. They wouldn't have had the skills at their age for all of them to disappear. But I think that they could have been lured out of the house mm-hmm. fairly easily, especially if somebody got a hold of the older two boys when they were outside <clears throat> and just coaxed the younger kids to come out or even told one of the older boys, you're going to go in and get the kids outside or we're going to kill your parents or something. Or Santa Claus is here and lured them outside that way. Krampus. Maybe it was Krampus. Mm -hmm. They're not German. They're Italian. That's why he was so angry. (laughs) He doesn't just punish German children. He punishes all anybody. But he's from German folklore. Okay. And he's Well, I'm sure there's an Italian Krampus. Germans are angry. Especially at this point, because I just lost the war. Oh. He's pissed. It's true. All right, well, any other insights? No, I'm frustrated. I'm feeling... It's been a while since we did a case that left me frustrated. Remember yeah. when we first started, you... a lot of them were like that? They were like... Yeah. No closure. Did murder in that one room. Yes, what the that fuck happened there? Still one of my favorite episodes. Well, um, the, the house with, like, the... The one Lacey did. But that one wasn't family. like... It wasn't like a we, what we the fuck happened. It was a... There's no justice. Yeah. yeah. There, um, was the girl with the uh, the dog and she went into the shoot? Phoebe. Phoebe Hanson. Um, Lacey, did you remember this uh, case while we were like talking about it at all? No. I thought I would because... Um... I thought that I probably would have heard it on another podcast or something. And it almost sounded a little bit familiar when you guys had like mentioned it a couple episodes ago. But no, I didn't remember. I don't think I... If I've learned about this one, it was long enough ago that I kind of forgot about it. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, the bus driver who said it looked like someone was throwing like balls of fire at the house? Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. they said that they found like a grenade or something. Yeah, don't yeah. grenades kind of go boom? Huh? Yeah, you, I mean, you Don't could have a dud, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, but it, but that, and then when he said balls of fire, I was like, oh, Molotovs. Yeah. Great but you would think that, like, the breaking glass or something of them being thrown in the house would have, like, woken them up. <sighs> well, Jenny woke up to a thump on the roof and then a rolling sound. Yeah. That's true. I don't um. know, and I don't like it. I know what would be cool is if enough of these people get on like Ancestry or not Ancestry, 23andMe or something and like connect with family members and they figure it out. Yeah. That's a good idea. That would be exciting. Alrighty. Well, that was sinister. We were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening. Even though that was a very depressing Christmas episode. Yes. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy Christmas. (laughs) British. (laughs) 